1 Samuel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. And it came to pass at that time while Eli was lying down in his place and when his eyes began to grow so dim that he couldn't see. And before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was. And while Samuel was lying down. But the Lord called Samuel and he answered. Here I am. So he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. And he said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. Then the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He answered, I didn't call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel was not yet, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. So he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times. Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows. Because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning. And opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He answered, here I am. And he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. And Samuel told him everything. And hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel and Shiloh by the word of the Lord. In World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer made a very famous statement. He, before he was taken to prison, he wrote that the responsible person seeks to make his or her whole life a response to the question and call 
of God. And that's what this chapter is about. It's it's about the call of God. And this is one of those stories that for those of you who grew up in a Christian household or or you got to spend some time in children's church or or Sunday school, this is one of those stories that's going to be very, very familiar to you. You saw the pictures and the images of a little Samuel and his little ephod and, and you probably even exercised some some Bible illustrations as you would act out the scene. It's interesting to me that so many people remember the story, but they forget the message. You'll remember the book of Judges ended with the statement, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And remember, Samuel is growing up in that kind of a world where everyone did exactly what they wanted to do. Samuel was born into a world where religion was more about symbol than substance, where leadership was corrupt, where the covenant people of God and the religious circumstances of the people of God were marked by corruption and scandal and abuse. And you'll remember that Eli, the high priest, had received several warnings about his sons. How they abused the people of God and the word of God in the temple. How they took advantage of the things of God and the people of God for their own selfish purposes. And Eli had spoke to his sons, but it didn't seem to have any kind of an effect. And clearly, Eli had the ability not simply to speak to his children, but to discipline them. But he refused. And you'll remember in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, an unknown prophet appears at Shiloh and pronounces judgment on Eli and his family. And we see this sharp contrast between the wickedness of one group and the faithfulness of another. And this particular calling of Samuel, he has been set aside by his mother to serve the Lord. You know, you can be raised in a Christian home and you can be prayed for by your mother and your father, by your by your parents and grandparents. People can raise you and instruct you in the things of God. But only God can call you. Only the Lord God can call you. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this particular chapter. It's easy to relate to the call of Samuel for most of us. And the reason why God calls Samuel as a child. You'll remember in the Old Testament when the Lord showed up for Moses, it's in a burning bush. When the Lord shows up for Isaiah, it's the spectacular vision of God in heaven in the throne room of God. But most of you... That's not your testimony. You didn't have some incredible vision. But it was the quiet confidence of people who loved you and cared about you. Instructing you in the things of God. God calls believers to rise up and go forth and serve Him. And this is part of the point that if you miss it, you won't understand the chapter. Samuel is being called in a world of selfishness and corruption, of wickedness and 
an unhealthy preoccupation with all things relating to self. God is raising him up under those circumstances and calling him to be different from the world in which he's living in. People are in pain. People are suffering. Sin is taking its toll. It is true that people are going hungry and thirsty. It is true that some people are sick. It is true that some people are depressed and disturbed and diseased and uneducated and untrained. And people are filled with anxiety and stress and gripped with fear and facing financial ruin and bankruptcy. People are empty and they're looking for meaning with little or no contact with the God of the Bible. Nothing became even more real to me in this last trip as we traveled through Israel and then we went to Greece and Turkey, that particularly Turkey, in the first century, after Jesus rose from the dead, after Paul went and as churches were established, in that country, it had the highest concentration of Christians in the world. Now there are less than 5,000 Christians in a country that has 16 million people. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. If you take the three largest churches in the city of Denver, that's more Christians than in the entire country where the largest concentration of Christians used to be. People need to hear the Word of God. People need to hear the Word of God and believe the Word of God to share the gospel of hope that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And guess what? For most of the people that you come in contact with, you're the, their only connection to the Word of God and the things of God and the will of God. And so... We begin with putting ourselves in a place where we can listen. And that's what we find out in the chapter. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. The text is telling us that Samuel comes. Remember, he's been lent by his mother and father to the high priest in order to perform the functions in the temple, I need you to understand that Samuel might be 10 years old. He might be 11 or 12 years old. He, but he's, he's not an adult. He clearly hasn't come to a place where he has sort of adult accountability. And it says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. The idea is, remember, everyone did what was right. Nobody listened to God. No, Very few people were obeying the word of God. The prophetic word of God was few and far between. When the Lord would show up and speak, it was very rare because few people were willing to listen and even fewer people were willing to obey. And it says, and it came to pass at that time while Eli was lying down in his place and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he couldn't see, were giving, uh, given a picture, not just simply of the physical circumstances of Eli. Remember, he is old and he is blind. But he isn't just physically old and physically blind. 
he's detached from the things of God and the Word of God. And he isn't just physically blind, he's becoming spiritually blind. And in verse 3 it says, And before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel. And he answered, Here I am. Now, before we go further, I want to remind you in verse 3 where it says, And before the lamp of God, the lamp of God here is the seven-branched golden candlestick that's called the menorah. For those of you who went to Israel with me, there was a, a, a replica, if you will, of, of, a, of, a, of the menorah. It was in wood covered with a, a plate of gold, but the original menorah was a, was a, a, a fairly large lampstand, if you will. It was a candelabra, and it was what was the source of light in the holy place. The, this candelabra was placed before the veil. Remember, they're in Shiloh. This isn't the tabernacle on the Temple Mount. This is that temporary tent-like structure that was placed in Shiloh and there was a gigantic veil and on the outskirts of the veil was the golden altar of incense and this menorah and the menorah was the only source of light in the holy place and the priests were ordered to keep it burning always in Exodus chapter 27 verse 20 it was their job to trim the wicks when they offered the incense in the morning and in the evening and apparently at this time, during the period of history of Israel, the high priests and the other priests are camped in and around this tabernacle. And it's their job to keep the light shining. And it says, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord. In other words, it's, it's flickering. It's it's as if the picture that we're giving is the lights are turned way down and it's going in and out of focus, if you will. The lamp of God becomes this type and this picture of God's light, the light of truth, the light of God's word. You'll remember that the lamp is a type and a, a picture of the person of Jesus Christ. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus comes during the festival of lights and he says, I'm the light of the world. That golden candelabra is just a, a, a symbol of the real light that would come from God's Messiah. Jesus is the true light to the world, but the light was flickering. It was filled with shadows. There was no widespread revelation. And again, for us, we have this enormous privilege. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, in times past, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his own Dear son, you have access to the truth, to the word of God, to the plan of God, to the will of God. Now think about what the text is saying. The high priest can't see. The Ark of the Covenant is there. Now again, for those of you who are Bible students, you also remember that the Ark of the Covenant was that golden box that was made out of acacia wood that was covered in gold that had cherubim on either sides and inside of the Ark of the Covenant, what was inside there? Aaron's budding rod, what else was in there? The Ten Commandments was in there. And the, the pot of manna, it's the Ark of the Covenant spoke of the presence of God, the provision of God, and the law of God. 
the Ark of the Covenant contained the law of God, but it was a law that was largely ignored, even broken, simply ignored, not simply by the leaders, but by the, excuse me, by the people, but by the leaders. I mean, it's one thing for people to ignore the, the Word of God, but guess what do you do when the leadership ignores the Word of God. And here's the young Samuel, lent by the Lord, who's literally standing on the precipice of a new era because it's going to go from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. Samuel is going to be the last great judge of Israel. And he's going to be a great prophet of God. And so the Lord calls him. Look what it says in verse 4. The Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. Now, by the way, the Lord speaks to Samuel four times. You'll note it in the chapter. It happens in, in verse 4, in verse 6, in verse 8, and verse 10. The first three times Samuel believes it's the voice of Eli. Now, again, and the text tells us the reason. Samuel had never heard the voice of the Lord before. Look what it says. So he ran to Eli and he said, here I am for you called me. And he said, I didn't call you. Lie down. Kid, go back to sleep. Now, if you remember the story of Saul of Tarsus when he was persecuting the church, you'll remember that he was out to persecute the church. He's on his way to Damascus and you'll remember there's a bright light and he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And do you remember his response? Who are you? Saul was raised a Jew. He was a rabbi. But he had never heard the voice of the Lord. Young Samuel had never heard the voice of the Lord. Now, this is interesting to me because I suspect that for many people, they hear the voice of the Lord and they wonder if it's just simply a human voice or if it's their own imagination. I have the great privilege of, of standing behind this pulpit and sharing the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on many, many occasions, I've extended invitations and I've said, hear the word of the Lord. Listen to what God is saying. Listen to what God is saying to you. Listen to what God is speaking to your heart. And people will say, well, that's, it sounds like the voice of Gino. It doesn't sound like the Lord. You hear a voice inside of you. And the voice inside of you is calling you to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus and live a life of, of humility and obedience, of commitment to Christ. And you hear the call and you go, is that, is that my imagination? It's interesting to me how, how he hears the voice once and he thinks it's a human being. He hears the voice twice and he thinks it's, it's just the voice of Eli. It leads us to ask the question, how do I know? How do I know if it's God calling me? And I'm here to tell you something. That when God calls you, the voice will sound familiar. It will be a familiar voice. 
It says in verse 10, Now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered and said, Speak, for your servant hears. In the end, the right response is the response of obedience. You see, in order for you to hear the voice of the Lord, you have to place yourself in a position where you will be open to hearing the voice of the Lord. Remember where Samuel finds himself in. He's camped out in the tabernacle. He's camped out in close proximity to this menorah. He's camped out in close proximity to the Ark of the Covenant. He's camped out in that place and in those circumstances where he is open in his heart and in his mind to hearing the voice of God. But some of us run from God. We think that we can hear the voice of the Lord on the golf course or at the bar or in the club. But the young man Samuel is obedient. And look at verse 11. It says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. The idea being... Now, this is, again, remember what I said to you. We remember the Sunday school story of, a, of the Lord calling Samuel into the ministry, but we sometimes miss the message. We forget the message. And the message that the Lord is giving to Samuel as he's calling him, he, he basically says, look, I'm going to do something that's going to cause everyone to, to take notice. In that day, I will perform against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house. Those things that were spoken is found in verse 27 to the end of the chapter in, in, in chapter 2. Remember the unnamed prophet came, came to Eli and basically said, Look, the Lord is speaking. And the Lord is saying, didn't I clearly reveal myself to, to the house of, the, of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Eli was a direct descendant of Aaron. And Aaron's children had the, the, the responsibility of performing the role of the high priest. And in verse 12, it says, In that day I will perform against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. The young Samuel had no idea about this prophecy. And in verse 13, it says, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. But we're, I'm the high priest, and these are the high priest's sons, and we're religious, and, and we're the ones who offer the sacrifices. Guess what? There's no sacrifice for you. When people heard about the judgment, they would be terrified and fearful, and there would be a great shock in Israel. By the way, chapter 4 is going to describe exactly what happens. Israel will be defeated by the Philistines. 30,000 Israeli soldiers are going to be killed. Eli's two sons are going to be killed. The Ark of the Covenant is going to be captured. And when Eli hears the news, he's going to drop dead. By the way, this Ark of the Covenant, this very symbol of God's presence among 
the people, you have to understand, to lose the ark meant to lose God's presence from their perspective. God wouldn't be there to guide and protect and provide for them. So this is a catastrophe. This is a message of judgment. Your symbols are going to be taken away from you. Do religious symbols save people? They don't. It isn't the religious symbol that saves you. It's the substance that that symbol represents. You can pray to as many crosses as you want. But until you acknowledge the person who died on that cross and believe that he rose from the dead and you enter into a very real and personal relationship, there's going to be an emptiness and a loneliness. Now, remember, this is an 11 or a 12 year old child. And he's given a message of judgment to the high priest. Imagine an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old altar boy who has to go to the Pope in Rome. And say, guess what? God's going to judge you. See, we laugh. We laugh. Because it sounds so absurd. And the message of judgment is lost in this present world. Because you see, sometimes when God calls us, He calls us with a message. And the message is a message of judgment. Please stop talking about judgment. Oh, I was hoping this place wouldn't be one of those hellfire brimstone places. I was hoping that this wouldn't be one of those places where, where they wouldn't point out sin and ask you to repent of sin and turn from your sin. The message of the gospel, listen carefully, is that is a message of judgment. Either Jesus receives your judgment on the cross that brings salvation or you're going to experience judgment when you meet God face to face. If we continue in our sin and wickedness, we're going to die and we're going to bear the judgment of God. Do you have a different message that I could possibly give? Some of you had to give that message to your family and your friends. Now tell me again what it is that you believe. Well, isn't it evident to you that there's something desperately wrong in this world? That the pain and the suffering and the circumstances of life that sin has has brought an awful toll on this world and that the Bible is correct when it says that sin separates us from God. That when Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says that it's appointed unto men once to die, but after that the judgment. The faithful prophet of God can't ignore the message of judgment. And, and again, remember when, when we're talking with children in the Sunday school, this is the message that's left out. But this young man will hear the message and he's going to hear God's plan for the future. And this is a heavy, weighty message for a very young man. And it's going to be his first test of obedience. Some of you accepted Jesus Christ as a very small child. And in that childish way, you understood the story about sin and the story about salvation. Certainly, Samuel 
has got some very tough decisions that he's going to have to make. He was unaware of the earlier prophecy that Eli and the sons were were going to be judged and that there was no sacrifice that would help them escape the judgment of God. Their sins were deliberate and defiant. And for those kinds of sins, there is no sacrifice that can be offered. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 30, there's an interesting statement that's made. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 30, it says, But the person who does anything presumptuously whether he is native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from his people, because he has despised the word of God. He has broken the commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall remain upon him. Ooh, that sounds pretty harsh. You mean there's a type of sin... That sacrifice won't cover. Oh, uh, yeah. The blood of bulls and goats can't eliminate sin. It can only cover it for a season. In order to deal with the deep, entrenched pattern of wickedness and rebellion and disobedience in the heart of the person, it's going to take an act of grace. A supernatural intervention by God himself. And that's exactly the story of the gospel. God intervenes. He doesn't just intervene in a way where he shows up and he says, I'm God, like some Oz movie where he goes, I'm the great Oz. But he shows up and dies a criminal's death. Gives a perfect sacrifice. And then rises from the dead. The sons had defiled themselves. The sons had defiled the priesthood. The Lord had been patient and long-suffering, but they had refused to repent and they had refused to return to the Lord. And now it was too late. Now, again, there's two kinds of messages that we can give. The first message is, it's not too late. Isn't that a good message? It's not too late. When you give a message and you go, hey, guess what? It's not too late. You know what's wonderful about the circumstance that you find yourself in? You can repent. You can turn from your sin. You can embrace the forgiveness and hope that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no wickedness. There's no rebellion. There's no disobedience. There's no detachment that you might be experiencing, that God isn't willing to say, hey, guess what? You can turn from your sin. There's a provision of grace and mercy for your life. And then there's another message. And the message is, it's too late. You've crossed the line. You've made a commitment to go in a direction where there's no turning back. It's my great privilege to be able to say, I don't know where that line is. Only God does. But God knows about the line. Have you crossed that line? I hope not. 
If you haven't crossed the line, guess what? There's hope. So the call of God is given to Samuel repeatedly. Now, this becomes an important thing for you because you may have heard God calling out to you over and over and over again. And you might have found an excuse. It wasn't really the voice of God. That was wishful thinking on my part. That was the pastor trying to guilt me or manipulate me into joining a church or joining the whatever. Hey, you know what? I have no desire to manipulate you into joining the church. And I certainly don't have any desire of tricking you into accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says this. Narrow is the way that leads to salvation. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And you've heard me say this. If I can talk you into a right relationship with God through Christ, then somebody a little more clever than me can talk you out of it. It has to be a supernatural work of God. Brought about by the Holy Spirit, drawing you, calling you. And again, Samuel mistakes the voice of God for the voice of man. God wants a response. Eventually, Samuel gives that response. And you may have heard God call you. But there is going to come a time where God demands a response. You see, one of the things that you should never, ever, never, ever do is that when God presents something to you, to reject Him. And each and every one of you have had experiences in your life where you hear the Spirit of God speak inside of your heart. And remember, the call is repeated time and time again. But our right response is submission and surrender in order to serve the Lord. And it is true that many are called and few are chosen. Many are called to accept Jesus as as Savior and Lord. Many are called to turn from a lifestyle of carnality and self-indulgence. Many are called to rededicate their life and live wholeheartedly for Jesus. Many are called to serve in the ministry. Many are called to serve in missions. Many are called to minister to the poor. Many are called to cultivate skills necessary to participate in the weakness and illness of others. Some people are called into a profession. Some people are called to prepare and secure an education so that you can give a lifetime of ministry. Some of you are called to earn money so you can give sacrificially. Some people of you are called to a certain group of people. What I call the least, the last, the lost. God's calling you to the homeless. To the hurting, to the sexually broken, to the homosexual, to the transgender, to the person that nobody else wants to deal with and nobody else wants to talk to. God's calling you. And God says, I am equipping you and gifting you for a very specific purpose. Don't resist my call. But when God calls, there are people who shut their ears and shut their hearts and and turn away. And almost every time, almost every time that the church gathers together, almost every time, without exception, there is a certain person who is called by God to make a specific decision to respond to the call of God for your life. And what should you say? Samuel, in his rebellion, excuse me, uh, Eli, 
Has he been a very good high priest? Not really. Has he been a great father? No. But when he said to Samuel, when the Lord, when you hear the voice of the Lord, this is what you need to say. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. By the way, is it possible for a wicked, failed human being to give you good advice on how to respond to the Lord? If Eli's any example there is, it could very well be that this is the most important thing that Eli ever does. He gives the young Samuel instructions. When you hear God speaking to you, respond. And look what it says in verse 15. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Notice what Samuel does. He lies down until morning. He doesn't go, I've heard the voice of the Lord, and guess what? You're toast. No, there's a profound humility and sensitivity. By the way, the young lad gets up and he opens the door of the house of the tabernacle. Part of what you may not be able to understand when you're reading this text. Do you know what this young man is doing? He's going back to his normal routine. That's what he does. He's a little boy. And this is his job. He is an attendant. He opens the doors of the house of the Lord so that the people can continue to sacrifice. He's heard the voice of the Lord and he's heard the message of the Lord. But guess what? He doesn't go, I am a prophet. I am a prophet. No, there's this profound sense of humility. And by the way, I've read the Bible many, many times and the life of Samuel many times. And this is the only time that I've been able to discover in the life and the ministry of Samuel where the word afraid is used in connection to this guy. Samuel's not a guy who is easily afraid. But this is the one and only time in the ministry where it says, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. By the way, why do you suppose he's afraid? Do you have any idea? Hasn't Eli blessed Samuel's parents? Really, in spite of, of his imperfect ministry, Eli has blessed his parents. Eli is the high priest. You're to respect the high priest. Eli taught Samuel the fundamentals of ministry. Earlier, he helped Samuel discern the voice of the Lord. If Samuel's love for Eli causes Samuel at some level to shield the truth from Eli, the word of God, the command of God, I'm sure that some of you can relate to that. The Lord speaks to you and says, I want you to tell your mom. I want you to tell your dad. I want you to tell your brother. I want you to tell your sister. I want you to tell your neighbor that God loves them and that they don't have to live empty, alone, hurting, unforgiven, 
uncertain about whether or not they're going to go to heaven. They, they don't have to live that way. Tell them the truth about me. They're going to hate me. <laughs> I mean, I have a pretty good relationship with my neighbor, with my boss, with my friend, with my family. Why should I try to ruin this friendship? Because I'm asking you to give them hope. Well, I don't know exactly how to do that. I'll give you a message. I'll give you a way to speak to them. <laughs> you know what? Samuel's going to need courage. And for a prophet, you can imagine when push comes to shove, you only have two choices, don't you? You will deliver the word or you won't deliver the word. And even as a young man, called by God, faced with this decision, he has to make a choice. And in verse 16 it says, Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son! He answered, Here I am. In verse 17 he says, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please don't hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Question. What do you think about that? What do you think about those words? Does this, is this the response of a carnal man who's using threat and intimidation to get Daniel to talk? Is this repentance on the part of Eli or resignation? Repentance or resignation? Hey, look, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours, you see. Hey, whatever will be. Do you think Eli is joyfully submitting to the will of God and the word of God or resigned to the fact that God's going to do whatever it is that God wants to do anyway? Now, I'm going to give you some suggestions. As I was going over this text, I was asking myself that very same question, and I didn't come up with an answer. I know you go, ooh, I want an answer. Let me just put a couple of things out there for you. Eli's an old man. He hasn't been the perfect father. He hasn't been the perfect priest. His sons are going to perish in a single day. His family is going to lose the privilege of serving in the priesthood. Clearly, God has made the choice that Samuel is going to serve both as priest and prophet and judge, and that the Lord is going to cause the family of Eli to disappear, and that God is clearly speaking to Samuel the word of God to the people of God. And if ever there was a time that people needed to desperately hear the word of the of the Lord, that God was going to execute justice and just and judgment. Whatever the answer is in the end, the place of peace and the place of mercy is clearly to be found in the Word of God and the will of God. If someone does have enough courage to confront you with the truth, isn't it interesting that he would say, tell me the truth, the whole truth. And nothing but the truth 
Then Samuel, it says in verse 18, told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It's the Lord. Let him do what he seems good to him. In verse 19 it says, So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. That expression is an interesting expression. And let none of his words fall to the ground. You know what it means? It it means that the word of God came to pass or came true. In other words, when the Lord appeared and spoke to Samuel and then Samuel spoke the word of the Lord, it always, without fail, in every circumstance, always, always happened. More specifically, the things Samuel said is going to happen as a certainty. And so when Samuel said something would happen in the name of the Lord, guess what? It happens. And isn't that the sign of a true prophet? The true prophet, when they speak in the name of the Lord, they're not going to speak presumptuously. They're not going to speak erroneously. They're going to speak in such a way that they represent the word of God and the character of God and the circumstances of God. And in verse 20 it says, And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. When it says in Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, again, those of you who went to Israel with me, remember Dan is the northernmost border of Israel. Beersheba is the southernmost border of Israel. So it was their way of saying, if we don't use north and south, but east to west, like from California to Maine. The nation of Israel recognized the gift and the calling The people knew that God had called Samuel, that Samuel was a legitimate priest and judge and prophet, and Samuel could speak the word of God to the people of God. And it says in verse 21, Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh. Look what it says, by the word of the Lord. Now the transition is about to take place. The new beginning. The shift from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. God had been silent for a very long time. And now the Lord showed up at the temple in Shiloh. And look carefully at the words. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. I'm going to suggest something to you. That in a supernatural manifestation... Of the Lord, that the Lord actually appears to Samuel and speaks to Samuel. You know, Richard Parker made famous the words, God doesn't call people who are qualified. He calls people who are willing and then he qualifies them. When God calls you, you might come to the conclusion, I'm not qualified to give people hope. I'm not qualified to preach the gospel. I'm not qualified to love people, serve people, minister to people. But guess what? God will give you exactly what you need in order to accomplish exactly what he's called you to do. So how does Samuel know that he's called by God? Very quickly. The Lord is present in the life of Samuel. You know why that becomes important to you? You can ask the question, how do I know that I'm called by God? 
To serve in the ministry, to serve in the children's ministry, to serve in these circumstances, to serve in those circumstances. How do I know that God wants me to minister to the poor, to the needy, to the hurting? How do I know what it is that God wants me to do? How do I know that I'm called? Guess what? The presence of the Lord will be real in your life. The Lord will reveal himself to you. Remember the Bible says Samuel grew up. He matures in the Lord. God speaks to him, helping and encouraging the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, one translation in verse 19 is everything Samuel said was wise and helpful. Let me ask you a question. Do the things that you say, are they wise? Are they helpful? You know, one of the ways that you know that God's called you into the healing ministry, when you minister to people, they get healed. You know, one of the ways that you know that God's called you to a ministry of teaching, when you teach, people will be taught. You know how God has called you to a ministry of encouragement? When people are discouraged and you show up, they're encouraged. You know how you're not? You know if you're not called to the ministry? Is if you show up and you give them tequila shots. And you go, here, drown your sorrows. That isn't a biblical way to deal with problem and pain. Do you know how you know if you're called? That if you point people to the Word of God and to the person of Jesus Christ. And the second thing is, remember, the people around Samuel recognized the call. Remember as he spoke, all from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, people began to recognize, guess what? There's a prophet in the land. There's a person who hears from God and speaks to God. If you are called by God, guess what? There are going to be a circle of people who are going to begin to confirm the gift and the calling that God has placed in your life. You know how that will happen? People will say, oh, look at this person. She's an encouragement. Oh, look at this person. He's an encouragement. Oh, look at this person or that person. Look what God is doing. Look at the gifts and callings in their life. Samuel imparts. He gives the word of God to the people of God. As a matter of fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 18, he said, And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all of the churches. In other words, there is the manifestation of the presence of real gifted people in third john um verse 12 it says demetrius has a good report of all men and of the truth itself yes and we also bear record or witness and you know that our record is true in other words paul along with his companions are saying here is a guy who loves you and loves the lord and all of the church bears record to the fact of what an encouragement he's been The third thing is an ongoing walk and continuous fellowship. Samuel just doesn't hear from the Lord in a single occasion. But you'll note at the end of the chapter, the Lord continues to reveal himself to Samuel through his word. You know, one of the reasons that you can trust the call of God in your life, it's when every morning and every week and every month, and every year, you remain faithful to the call of God and the word of God and the testimony concerning the gift and the calling that God has placed in your life. 
Obedience to the call of God is proof of God's call on a person's life. You hear and you respond and you walk and you bear fruit and then other people confirm the ministry that God has given to you. You know what is one of the most wonderful things about me being gone? Other than what a blessing it is for you guys? Is gifted men and women all around the church get to step up to the plate. And as the gifted men and women step up to the plate and you guys go, I had no idea Fernando could teach like that. It was anointed. And I go, yeah. Because God has a gift and a calling on his life. God has a gift and a calling on the men and the women who serve you. And the gift and the calling is manifested not just simply in the work that they do, but in the love that they have for you. Remember Paul, when he was talking about his own companions, it it was that there were very few people who represented him in ministry. But God is represented perfectly when gifted men and women come into your life and pray for you and encourage you and minister to you. So, Elizabeth Dole, some of you know that name. She was married to a former United States Senator. If ever there was a woman that I would have loved to have voted for president, it would have been her. She said something quite remarkable. She said, It is not what I do that matters, but what a sovereign God chooses to do through me. God does not want worldly successes. He wants me. He wants a heart in submission to Him. Life is not just a few years to spend on self-indulgence and career advancement. It is a privilege, a responsibility, a stewardship to be lived according to a much higher calling. God's calling. This alone gives true meaning to life. The only thing that will give true meaning to your life is for you to hear the call of God, respond to the call of God, walk in the call of God, and then allow the call of God to bear fruit so that the kingdom will be advanced. I'm going to pray for you. And one of the things that I'm going to pray for you is that you will hear the call of God and that you'll respond to it. And if for whatever reason you've heard it in the past and you've ignored it in the past because the voice sounded like my voice or it sounded like your voice, I want to suggest to you That if it's a voice that's calling you to turn to Jesus, if it's a voice that's telling you to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior, if it's a voice that's telling you to turn from a life of self-indulgence and self-preoccupation, then I'm going to suggest to you that that's probably not my voice or your voice, but that it is in fact the voice of God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each person within the sound of my voice. 
Lord, I pray that you would minister to those that you have called, that you would confirm the, the call. And for those who are calling, that you're calling to, that you're calling them to turn from a course of action that's so wrong, it's so inconsistent with the Word of God and the character of God, that you have a plan for them. And the plan doesn't include living a life of loneliness and emptiness, of wickedness. But it includes a plan of life and love and joy and fruitfulness. Lord, I pray that you would speak to that man. Lord, I pray that you would speak to that woman. Lord, I pray that just like you whispered Samuel's name so long ago, that, Lord, you would speak their name. They would hear your voice. Lord, I pray that you would instruct them on what they need to do. If it's turning from sin and accepting the Savior, Lord, I pray that that's exactly what they would do. Lord, if it's rebellion and disobedience, that they would return to a life of submission to you. Lord, if it's to prepare a path for a lifetime of ministry, Lord, I pray that you would confirm it right now. And Lord, in the quietness of each and every heart who is hearing the voice of God, Lord, I pray that you would confirm that. Call their name, Lord. Call them. And Lord, it's my prayer that you would give each and every one the strength to say, Here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening. Or minimum, Here I am, Lord. Send me. In Jesus' name, amen.